Volume Two, Chapter Eight of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Madeira. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume Two, Chapter Eight. After a long interval I am again impelled by the restless spirit within me to continue my narration. But I must alter the mode which I have hitherto adopted. The details contained in the foregoing pages apparently trivial, yet each slightest one weighing like lead in the depressed scale of human afflictions. This tedious dwelling on the sorrows of others, while my own were only in apprehension, this slowly laying bare of my soul's wounds, this journal of death, this long-drawn and torturous path, leading to the ocean of countless tears, awakens me again to keen grief. I had used this history as an opiate. While it described my beloved friends, fresh with life and glowing with hope, active assistance on the scene, I was soothed. There will be a more melancholy pleasure in painting the end of all. But the intermediate steps, the climbing the wall raised up between what was and is, while I still looked back nor saw the concealed desert beyond as a labour past my strength. Time and experience have placed me on a height from which I can comprehend the past as a whole, and in this way I must describe it, bringing forward the leading incidents and disposing light and shade so as to form a picture in whose very darkness there will be harmony. It would be needless to narrate those disastrous occurrences for which a parallel might be found in any slighter visitation of our gigantic calamity. Does the reader wish to hear of the pest-houses, where death is the comforter, of the mournful passage of the death-cart, of the insensibility of the worthless and the anguish of the loving heart, of harrowing shrieks and silence dire, of the variety of disease, desertion, famine, despair, and death. There are many books which can feed the appetite craving for these things. Let them turn to the accounts of Boccaccio, Defoe, and Brown. The vast annihilation that has swallowed all things, the voiceless solitude of the once busy earth, the lonely state of singleness which hems me in, has deprived even such details of their stinging reality and mellowing the lurid tints of past anguish with poetic hues, I am able to escape from the mosaic of circumstance, by perceiving and reflecting back the grouping and combined colouring of the past. I had returned from London possessed by the idea, with the intimate feeling that it was my first duty to secure, as well as I was able, the well-being of my family, and then to return and take my post beside Adrian. The events that immediately followed on my arrival at Windsor changed this view of things. The plague was not in London alone. It was everywhere. It came on us, as Ryland had said, like a thousand packs of wolves howling through the winter night, gaunt and fierce. When once disease was introduced into the rural districts, its effects appeared more horrible, more exigent, and more difficult to cure than in towns. There was a companionship in suffering there, and the neighbours, keeping constant watch on each other, and inspired by the active benevolence of Hadrian, succour was afforded, and the path of destruction smoothed, but in the country, among the scattered farmhouses, in lone cottages, in fields and barns, tragedies were acted, 
harrowing to the soul, unseen, unheard, unnoticed. Medical aid was less easily procured, food was more difficult to obtain, and human beings, unwithheld by shame, for they were unbeheld of their fellows, ventured on deeds of greater wickedness, or gave way more readily to their abject fears. Deeds of heroism also occurred, whose very mention swells the heart and brings tears into the eyes. Such is human nature, that beauty and deformity are often closely linked. In reading history we are chiefly struck by the generosity and self-devotion that follow close on the heels of crime, veiling with supernal flowers the stain of blood. Such acts were not wanting to adorn the grim train that waited on the progress of the plague. The inhabitants of Berkshire and Bucks had been long aware that the plague was in London, in Liverpool, Bristol, Manchester, York, in short, in all the more populous towns of England. They were not, however, the less astonished and dismayed when it appeared among themselves. They were impatient and angry in the midst of terror. They would do something to throw off the clinging evil, and, while in action, they fancied that a remedy was applied. The inhabitants of the smaller towns left their houses, pitched tents in the fields, wandering separate from each other, careless of hunger or the sky's inclemency, while they imagined that they avoided the death-dealing disease. The farmers and cottagers, on the contrary, struck with the fear of solitude, and madly desirous of medical assistance, flocked into the towns. But winter was coming, and with winter hope. In August the plague had appeared in the country of England, and during September it made its ravages. Towards the end of October it dwindled away, and was in some degree replaced by a typhus of hardly less virulence. The autumn was warm and rainy. The infirm and sickly died off. Happier they! Many young people, flushed with health and prosperity, made pale by wasting malady, became the inhabitants of the grave. The crop had failed, the bad corn and want of foreign wines added vigour to disease. Before Christmas half England was under water. The storms of the last winter were renewed, but the diminished shipping of this year caused us to feel less the tempests of the sea. The flood and storms did more harm to continental Europe than to us giving, as it were, the last blow to the calamities which destroyed it. In Italy the rivers were unwatched by the diminished peasantry, and like wild beasts from their lair when the hunters and dogs over far did Tiber, Arno, and Po rush upon and destroy the fertility of the plains. Whole villages were carried away. Rome and Florence and Pisa were overflowed, and their marble palaces, laid mirrored in tranquil streams, had their foundations shaken by their winter-gifted power. In Germany and Russia the injury was still more momentous. But frost would come at last, and with it a renewal of our lease of earth. Frost would blunt the arrows of pestilence, and enchain the furious elements. And the land would in spring throw off her garment of snow, released from her menace of destruction. It was not until February that the desired signs of winter appeared. For three days the snow fell. Ice stopped the current of the rivers, and the birds flew out from crackling branches of the frost-whitened trees. On the fourth morning all vanished. A southwest wind brought up rain, the sun came out, and mocking the usual laws of nature seemed even at this early season to burn with solstitial force. It was no consolation that with the first winds of March the lanes were filled with violets, the fruit-trees covered with blossoms that the corn sprung up and the leaves came out forced by the unseasonable heat. We feared the balmy air, 
We feared the cloudless sky, the flower-covered earth, and delightful woods, for we looked on the fabric of the universe no longer as our dwelling but our tomb, and the fragrant land smelled the apprehension of fear like a wide churchyard. Pisando la tierra dura, de continuo el hombre estaricado paso que da es sobre su sepultura. Yet notwithstanding these disadvantages, winter was breathing time, and we exerted ourselves to make the best of it. Plague might not revive with the summer, but if it did, it should find us prepared. It is a part of man's nature to adapt itself through habit even to pain and sorrow. Pestilence had become a part of our future, our existence. It was to be guarded against like the flooding of rivers, the encroachments of ocean, or the inclemency of the sky. After long-suffering and bitter experience, some panacea might be discovered. As it was, all that receive infection died. All, however, were not infected and it became our part to fix deep the foundations and raise high the barrier between contagion and the same. To introduce such order as would conduce to the well-being of the survivors, and as would preserve hope and some portion of happiness to those who were spectators of the still-renewed tragedy, Adrian had introduced systematic modes of proceeding in the metropolis, which, while they were unable to stop the progress of death, yet prevented other evils, vice and folly, from rendering the awful fate of the hour still more tremendous. I wish to imitate his example, but men are used to move altogether if they move at all, and I could find no means of leading the inhabitants of scattered towns and villages, who forgot my words as soon as they heard them not, and veered with every baffling wind that might arise from an apparent change of circumstance. I adopted another plan. Those writers who have imagined a reign of peace and happiness on earth have generally described a rural country, where each small township was directed by the elders and wise men. This was the key of my design. Each village, however small, usually contains a leader, one among themselves whom they venerate, whose advice they seek in difficulty, and whose good opinion they chiefly value. I was immediately drawn to make this observation by occurrences that presented themselves to my personal experience. In the village of Little Marlow, an old woman ruled the community. She had lived for some years in an almshouse, and on fine Sundays, her threshold was constantly beset by a crowd, seeking her advice and listening to her admonitions. She had been a soldier's wife, and had seen the world. Infirmity, induced by fevers caught in unwholesome quarters, had come on her before its time, and she seldom moved from her little cot. The plague entered the village, and while fright and grief deprived the inhabitants of the little wisdom they possessed, old Martha stepped forward and said, "'Before now!' I've been in a town where there was the plague. And you escaped? No, but I recovered. After this, Martha was seated more firmly than ever on the regal seat, elevated by reverence and love. She entered the cottages of the sick. She relieved their wants with her own hand. She betrayed no fear, and inspired all who saw her with some portion of her own native courage. She attended the markets, she insisted upon being supplied with food for those who were too poor to purchase it. She shewed them how the well-being of each included the prosperity of all. She would not permit the gardens to be neglected, nor the very flowers in the cottage lattices to droop from want of care. Hope, she said, was better than a doctor's prescription, and everything that could sustain and enliven the spirits of more worth than drugs and mixtures. It was the sight of little Marlowe and my conversations with Martha that led me to the plan I formed. 
I had before visited the manor-houses and gentlemen's seats, and often found the inhabitants actuated by the purest benevolence, ready to lend their utmost aid for the welfare of their tenants. But this was not enough. The intimate sympathy generated by similar hopes and fears, similar experience and pursuits, was wanting here. The poor perceived that the rich possessed other means of preservation than those which could be partaken of by themselves seclusion and as far as circumstances permitted freedom from care they could not place reliance on them but turned with tenfold dependence to the succour and advice of their equals i resolved therefore to go from village to village seeking out the rustic archon of the place and by systematizing their exertions and enlightening their views increase both their power and their use among their fellow cottagers many changes also now occurred in these spontaneous regal elections depositions and abdications were frequent while in the place of the old and prudent the ardent youth would step forward eager for action regardless of danger often too the voice to which all listened was suddenly silenced the helping hand cold the sympathetic eye closed and the villagers feared still more the death that had selected a choice victim shivering in dust the heart that had beat for them reducing to incommunicable annihilation the mind for ever occupied with projects for their welfare. Whoever labours for man must often find ingratitude, watered by vice and folly, spring from the grain which he has sown. Death, which had in our younger days walked the earth like a thief that comes in the night, now rising from his subterranean vault, girt with power, with dark banner floating, came a conqueror, Many saw, seated above his vice-regal throne, a supreme providence, who directed his shafts and guided his progress, and they bowed their heads in resignation, or at least in obedience. Others perceived only a passing casualty. They endeavoured to exchange terror for heedlessness, and plunged into licentiousness to avoid the agonizing throes of worst apprehension. Thus, while the wise, the good, and the prudent were occupied by the labours of benevolence, the truce of winter produced other effects among the young, the thoughtless, and the vicious. During the colder months there was a general rush to London in search of amusement. The ties of public opinion were loosened. Many were rich, heretofore poor. Many had lost father and mother, the guardians of their morals, their mentors and restraints. It would have been useless to have opposed these impulses by barriers, which would only have driven those actuated by them to more pernicious indulgencies. The theatres were open and thronged, dance and midnight festival were frequented. In many of these decorum was violated, and the evils which hitherto adhered to an advanced state of civilization were doubled. The student left his books, the artist his study, the occupations of life were gone, but the amusements remained. Enjoyment might be protracted to the verge of the grave. All factitious colouring disappeared, death rose like night, and protected by its murky shadows the blush of modesty, the reserve of pride, the decorum of prudery were frequently thrown aside as useless veils. This was not universal. Among better natures anguish and dread, the fear of eternal separation, and the awful wonder produced by unprecedented calamity drew closer the ties of kindred and friendship. Philosophers opposed their principles as barriers to the inundation of profligacy or despair and the only ramparts to protect the invaded territory of human life. The religious, hoping now for their reward, clung fast to their creeds, as the rafts and planks which over the tempest-vexed sea of suffering would bear them in safety to the harbour of the unknown continent. The loving heart, obliged to contract its view, bestowed its overflow of affection in triple portion on the few that remained. Yet even among these the present, 
as an unalienable possession, became all of time to which they dared commit the precious freight of their hopes. The experience of immemorial time had taught us formerly to count our enjoyments by years, and extend our prospect of life through a lengthened period of progression and decay. The long road threaded a vast labyrinth, and the valley of the shadow of death in which it terminated was hid by intervening objects. But an earthquake had changed the scene. Under our very feet the earth yawned deep and precipitous, the gulf below opened to receive us, while the hours charioted us toward the chasm. But it was winter now, and months must elapse before we are hurled from our security. We became ephemera, to whom the interval between the rising and setting sun was as a long-drawn year of common time. We should never see our children ripen into maturity, nor behold their downy cheeks roughened, their blithe hearts subdued by passion or care. But we had them now. They lived, and we lived. What more could we desire? With such schooling did my poor Idris try to hush thronging fears, and in some measure succeeded. It was not as in summer-time when each hour might bring the dreaded fate. Until summer we felt sure, and this certainty, short-lived as it must be, yet for a while satisfied her maternal tenderness. I know not how to express or communicate the sense of concentrated, intense though evanescent transport that imparadised us in the present hour. Our joys were dearer because we saw their end. They were keener because we felt to its fullest extent their value. They were purer because their essence was sympathy. As a meteor is brighter than a star, did the felicity of this winter contain in itself the extracted delights of a long, long life. How lovely is spring! As we looked from Windsor Terrace on the sixteen fertile counties spread beneath, speckled by happy cottages in wealthier towns, all looked as in former years, heart-cheering and fair. The land was ploughed, the slender blades of wheat broke through the dark soil, the fruit-trees were covered with buds, the husbandman was abroad in the fields, the milkmaid tripped home with well-filled pails, the swallows and martins struck the sunny pools with their long-pointed wings, the new-dropped lambs reposed on the young grass, the tender growth of leaves lifts its sweet head into the air and feeds a silent space with ever-sprouting green. Man himself seemed to regenerate, and feel the frost of winter yield to an elastic and warm renewal of life. Reason told us that care and sorrow would grow with the opening year, but how to believe that ominous voice breathed up with pestiferous vapours from fear's dim cavern while nature— laughing and scattering from her green lap flowers and fruits and sparkling waters invited us to join the gay mask of young life she led upon the scene where was the play here everywhere one voice of horror and dismay exclaimed when in the pleasant days of a sunny may the destroyer of man brooded again over the earth forcing the spirit to leave its organic chrysalis and to enter upon an untried life with one mighty sweep of its potent weapon, all caution, all care, all prudence were leveled low. Death sat at the tables of the great, stretched itself on the cottager's pallet, seized the dastard who fled, quelled the brave man who resisted. Despondency entered every heart, sorrow dimmed every eye. Sights of woe now became familiar to me, and were I to tell all of anguish and pain that I witnessed— of the despairing moans of age, 
and the more terrible smiles of infancy in the bosom of horror, my reader, his limbs quivering and his hair on end, would wonder how I did not, seized with sudden frenzy, dash myself from some precipice, and so close my eyes for ever on the sad end of the world. But the powers of love, poetry, and creative fancy will dwell even beside the sick of the plague, with the squalid and with the dying. A feeling of devotion, of duty, of a high and steady purpose elevated me. A strange joy filled my heart. In the midst of saddest grief I seemed to tread air, while the spirit of good shed round me an ambrosial atmosphere, which blunted the sting of sympathy and purified the air of sighs. If my wearied soul flagged in its career, I thought of my loved home, of the casket that contained my treasures, of the kiss of love and the filial caress, while my eyes were moistened by purest dew, and my heart was at once softened and refreshed by thrilling tenderness. Maternal affection had not rendered Idris selfish. At the beginning of our calamity she had, with thoughtless enthusiasm, devoted herself to the care of the sick and helpless. I checked her, and she submitted to my rule. I told her how the fear of her danger palsied my exertions, how the knowledge of her safety strung my nerves to endurance. I shewed her the dangers which her children incurred during her absence and she at length agreed not to go beyond the enclosure of the forest. Indeed, within the walls of the castle we had a colony of the unhappy, deserted by their relatives, and in themselves helpless, sufficient to occupy her time and attention, while ceaseless anxiety for my welfare and the health of her children, however she strove to curb or conceal it, absorbed all her thoughts, and undermined the vital principle. After watching over and providing for their safety, her second care was to hide from me her anguish and tears. Each night I returned to the castle, and found there repose and love awaiting me. Often I waited beside the bed of death till midnight, and through the obscurity of rainy, cloudy nights rode many miles, sustained by one circumstance only, the safety and sheltered repose of those I loved. If some scene of tremendous agony shook my frame and fevered my brow, I would lay my head on the lap of Idris and the tumultuous pulses subsided into a temperate flow. Her smile could raise me from hopelessness, her embrace bathe my sorrowing heart in calm peace. Summer advanced, and, crowned with the sun's potent rays, plague shot her unerring shafts over the earth. The nations beneath their influence bowed their heads and died. The corn that sprung up in plenty lay in autumn rotting on the ground while the melancholy wretch who had gone out to gather bread for his children lay stiff and plague-struck in the furrow. The green woods waved their boughs majestically, while the dying was spread beneath their shade, answering the solemn melody with inharmonious cries. The painted birds flitted through the shades, the careless deer reposed unhurt upon the fern, the oxen and the horses strayed from their unguarded stables and grazed among the wheat for death fell on man alone. With summer and mortality grew our fears. My poor love and I looked at each other and our babes. We will save them, Idris, I said. I will save them. Years hence we shall recount to them our fears, then passed away with their occasion. Though they only should remain on the earth, still they shall live, nor shall their cheeks become pale, nor their sweet voices languish. 
Our eldest in some degree understood the scenes passing around, and at times he with serious looks questioned me concerning the reason of so vast a desolation. But he was only ten years old, and the hilarity of youth soon chased unreasonable care from his brow. Evelyn, a laughing cherub, a gamesome infant, without idea of pain or sorrow, would, shaking back his light curls from his eyes, make the halls re-echo with his merriment, and in a thousand artless ways attract our attention to his play. Clara, our lovely, gentle Clara, was our stay, our solace, our delight. She made it her task to attend the sick, comfort the sorrowing, assist the aged, and partake the sports and awaken the gaiety of the young. She flitted through the rooms like a good spirit, dispatched from the celestial kingdom to illumine our dark hour with alien splendour. Gratitude and praise marked where her footsteps had been. Yet when she stood in unassuming simplicity before us, playing with our children, or with girlish assiduity performing little kind offices for Idris, one wondered in what fair lineament of her pure loveliness, in what soft tone of her thrilling voice so much of heroism, sagacity, and active goodness resided. The summer passed tediously, for we trusted that winter would at least check the disease. That it would vanish altogether was a hope too dear, too heartfelt to be expressed. When such a thought was heedlessly uttered, the hearers, with a gush of tears and passionate sobs, bore witness how deep their fears were, how small their hopes. For my own part, my exertions for the public good permitted me to observe more closely than most others the virulence and extensive ravages of our sightless enemy. A short month had destroyed a village, and where in May the first person sickened, in June the paths were deformed by unburied corpses, the houses tenantless, no smoke arising from the chimneys, and the housewife's clock marked only the hour when death had been triumphant. From such scenes I have sometimes saved a deserted infant, sometimes led a young and grieving mother from the lifeless image of her firstborn, or drawn the sturdy labourer from childish weeping over his extinct family. July is gone, August must pass, and by the middle of September we may hope. Each day was eagerly counted, and the inhabitants of towns, desirous to leap this dangerous interval, plunged into dissipation, and strove by riot, and what they wished to imagine to be pleasure, to banish thought in opiate despair. None but Adrian could have tamed the motley population of London, which, like a troop of unbitted steeds, rushed to their pastures, had thrown aside all minor fears through the operation of the fear paramount. Even Adrian was obliged in part to yield, that he might be able, if not to guide, at least to set bounds on the license of the times. The theatres were kept open, every place of public resort was frequented, though he endeavoured so to modify them as might best quiet the agitation of the spectators, and at the same time prevent a reaction of misery when the excitement was over. Tragedy deep and dire were the chief favourites. Comedy brought with it too great a contrast to the inner despair. When such were attempted, it was not unfrequent for a comedian, in the midst of the laughter occasioned by his disproportioned buffoonery, to find a word or thought in his part that jarred with his own sense of wretchedness, and burst from mimic merriment into sobs and tears, while the spectators, seized with irresistible sympathy, wept, and the pantomimic revelry was changed to a real exhibition of tragic passion. It was not in my nature to derive consolation from such scenes. From theatres whose buffoon laughter and discordant mirth awakened distempered sympathy, or where fictitious tears and wailings mocked the heart-felt grief within. From festival or crowded meeting, where hilarity sprung from the worst feelings of our nature, or such enthrallment of the better ones, 
as impressed it with garish and false varnish, from assemblies of mourners in the guise of revellers. Once, however, I witnessed a scene of singular interest at one of the theatres, where nature overpowered art, as an overflowing cataract will tear away the puny manufacture of a mock cascade, which had before been fed by a small portion of its waters. I had come to London to see Adrian. He was not at the palace, and, though the attendants did not know whether he had gone, they did not expect him till late at night. It was between six and seven o'clock, a fine summer afternoon, and I spent my leisure hours in a ramble through the empty streets of London, now turning to avoid an approaching funeral, now urged by curiosity to observe the state of a particular spot. My wanderings were instinct with pain, for silence and desertion characterized every place I visited, and the few beings I met were so pale and woebegone, so marked with care and depressed by fear, that weary of encountering only signs of misery, I began to retread my steps toward home. I was now in Holborn, and passed by a public-house filled with uproarious companions, whose songs, laughter, and shouts were more sorrowful than the pale looks and silence of the mourner. Such an one was near, hovering round this house. The sorry plight of her dress displayed her poverty. She was ghastly pale, and continued approaching first the window and then the door of the house, as if fearful yet longing to enter. A sudden burst of song and merriment seemed to sting her to the heart. She murmured, "'Can he have the heart?' And then, mustering her courage, she stepped within the threshold. The landlady met her in the passage. The poor creature asked, "'Is my husband here? Can I see George?' "'Say him,' cried the woman. "'Yeah, if you go to him. Last night he was taken with the plague. We sent him to the hospital.' The unfortunate inquirer staggered against a wall. A faint cry escaped her. "'Oh, were you cruel enough?' she exclaimed. "'To send him there?' The landlady, meanwhile, hurried away. But a more compassionate barmaid gave her a detailed account, the sum of which was that her husband had been taken ill, after a night of riot, and sent by his boon companions with all expedition to St. Bartholomew's Hospital. I had watched this scene, for there was a gentleness about the poor woman that interested me. She now tottered away from the door, walking as well as she could down Holborn Hill, but her strength soon failed her. She leaned against a wall, and her head sunk on her bosom, while her pallid cheek became still more white. I went up to her and offered my services. She hardly looked up. "'You can do me no good,' she replied. "'I must go to the hospital, if I do not die before I get there.' There were still a few hackney-coaches accustomed to stand about the streets, more truly from habit than for use. I put her in one of these, and entered with her that I might secure her entrance into the hospital. Our way was short, and she said little, except interrupted ejaculations of reproach that he had left her, exclamations on the unkindness of some of his friends, and hope that she would find him alive. There was a simple natural earnestness about her that interested me in her fate, especially when she assured me that her husband was the best of men, had been so, to want of business during these unhappy times had thrown him into bad company. "'They could not bear to come home,' she said, "'only to see her children die. A man cannot have the patience a mother has with her own flesh and blood.' We were set down at St. Bartholomew's, and entered the wretched precincts of the House of Disease. 
The poor creature clung closer to me as she saw with what heartless haste they bore the dead from the wards, and took them into a room whose half-open door displayed a number of corpses, horrible to behold by one unaccustomed to such scenes. We were directed to the ward where her husband had been first taken, and still was, the nurse said, if alive. My companion looked eagerly from one bed to the other, till at the end of the ward she espied, on a wretched bed, a squalid, haggard creature, writhing under the torture of disease. She rushed towards him, she embraced him, blessing God for his preservation. The enthusiasm that inspired her with a strange joy blinded her to the horrors about her, but they were intolerably agonizing to me. The ward was filled with an effluvia that caused my heart to heave with painful qualms. The dead were carried out, and the sick brought in with like indifference. Some were screaming with pain, others laughing from the influence of more terrible delirium. Some were attended by weeping, despairing relations. Others called aloud with thrilling tenderness or reproach on the friends who had deserted them, while the nurses went from bed to bed, incarnate images of despair, neglect, and death. I gave gold to my luckless companion. I recommended her to the care of the attendants. I then hastened away, while the torment of the imagination busied itself in picturing my own loved ones, stretched on such beds attended us. The country afforded no such mass of horrors. Solitary wretches died in the open fields, and I have found a survivor in a vacant village, contending at once with famine and disease, but the assembly of pestilence, the banqueting hall of death was spread only in London. I rambled on, oppressed, distracted by painful emotions. Suddenly I found myself before Drury Lane Theatre. The play was Macbeth. The first actor of the age was there to exert his powers to drug, with irreflection, the auditors. Such a medicine I yearned for, so I entered. The theatre was tolerably well filled. Shakespeare, whose popularity was established by the approval of four centuries, had not lost his influence even at this dread period, but was still Utmagus, the wizard to rule our hearts and govern our imaginations. I came in during the interval between the third and fourth act. I looked round on the audience. The females were mostly of the lower classes, but the men were of all ranks, come hither to forget a while the protracted scenes of wretchedness which awaited them at their miserable homes. The curtain drew up, and the stage presented the scene of the witch's cave. The wildness and supernatural machinery of Macbeth was a pledge that it could contain little directly connected with our present circumstances. Great pains had been taken in the scenery to give a semblance of reality to the impossible. The extreme darkness of the stage, whose only light was received from the fire under the cauldron, joined to a kind of mist that floated about it, rendered the unearthly shapes of the witches obscure and shadowy. It was not three decrepit old hags that bent over their pot throwing in the grim ingredients of the magic charm, but forms frightful, unreal, and fanciful. The entrance of Hecate and the wild music that followed took us out of this world. The cavern shape the stage assumed, the beetling rocks, the glare of the fire, the misty shades that crossed the scene at times, the music in harmony with all witch-like fancies, permitted the imagination to revel without fear of contradiction or reproof from reason or the heart. The entrance of Macbeth did not destroy the illusion, for he was actuated by the same feelings that inspired us. And while the work of magic proceeded, we sympathized in his wonder and his daring, and gave ourselves up with our whole souls to the influence of scenic delusion. I felt the beneficial result of such excitement, 
in a renewal of those pleasing flights of fancy to which I had long been a stranger. The effect of this scene of incantation communicated a portion of its power to that which followed. We forgot that Malcolm and Macduff were mere human beings, acted upon by such simple passions as warmed our own breasts. By slow degrees, however, we were drawn to the real interest of the scene. A shudder like the swift passing of an electric shock ran through the house, when Rosse exclaimed, in answer to, Stand Scotland where it did, Alas, poor country, almost afraid to know itself. It cannot be called our mother, but our grave, where nothing, but who knows nothing, is once seen to smile, where sighs and groans and shrieks that rent the air are made, not marked, where violent sorrow seems a modern ecstasy, the dead man's knell is there scarce asked, for who, and good men's lives expire before the flowers in their caps, dying or ere they sicken. Each word struck the sense as our life's passing bell. We feared to look at each other, but bent our gaze on the stage as if our eyes could fall innocuous on that alone. The person who played the part of Rossi suddenly became aware of the dangerous ground he trod. He was an inferior actor, but truth now made him excellent. As he went on to announce to Macduff the slaughter of his family, he was afraid to speak, trembling from apprehension of a burst of grief from the audience, not from his fellow mime. Each word was drawn out with difficulty. Real anguish painted his features. His eyes were now lifted in sudden horror, now fixed in dread upon the ground. This shoe of terror increased ours. We gasped with him, each neck was stretched out, each face changed with the actor's changes. At length, while Macduff, who, attending to his part, was unobservant to the high-wrought sympathy of the house, cried with well-acted passion, "'All my pretty ones! Did you say all? Oh, hell-kite, all! What? All my pretty chickens and their dam at one fell swoop!' A pang of timeless grief wrenched every heart. A burst of despair was echoed from every lip. I had entered into the universe of feeling. I had been absorbed by the terrors of Rosse. I re-echoed the cry of Macduff, and then rushed out as from an hell of torture to find calm in the free air and silent street. Free the air was not, or the street silent. Oh, how I longed then for the dear soothings of maternal nature, as my wounded heart was still further stung by the roar of heartless merriment from the public-house, by the sight of the drunkard reeling home, having lost the memory of what he would find there in oblivious debauch, and by the more appalling salutations of those melancholy beings to whom the name of home was a mockery. I ran on at my utmost speed until I found myself, I knew not how, close to Westminster Abbey, and was attracted by the deep and swelling tone of the organ. I entered with soothing awe the lighted chancel, and listened to the solemn religious chant, which spoke peace and hope to the unhappy. The notes, freighted with man's dearest prayers, re-echoed through the dim aisles, and the bleeding of the soul's wounds was staunched by heavenly balm. In spite of the misery I deprecated, and could not understand, in spite of the cold hearths of wide London, and the corpse-strewn fields of my native land, in spite of all the variety of agonizing emotions I had that evening experienced, I thought that in reply to a melodious adjurations, the Creator looked down in compassion and promise of relief. The awful peal of the heaven-winged music seemed fitting voice wherewith to commune with the Supreme. Calm was produced by its sound, and by the sight of many other human creatures offering up prayers and submission with me. 
A sentiment approaching happiness followed the total resignation of one's being to the guardianship of the world's ruler. Alas, with the failing of this solemn strain, the elevated spirit sank again to earth. Suddenly, one of the choristers died. He was lifted from his desk. The vaults below were hastily opened. He was consigned with a few muttered prayers to the darksome cavern, abode of thousands who had gone before, now wide, yawning to receive even all who fulfilled the funeral rites. In vain I would then have turned from the sea, to darkened aisle or lofty dome echoing with melodious praise. In the open air alone I found relief. Among nature's beauteous works, her God reassumed his attribute of benevolence, and again I could trust that he who built up the mountains, planted the forests, and poured out the rivers, would erect another state for lost humanity, where we might awaken again to our affections, our happiness, and our faith. Fortunately for me, those circumstances were of rare occurrence that obliged me to visit London, and my duties were combined to the rural district which our lofty castle overlooked. And here labour stood in the place of pastime, to occupy such of the country people as were sufficiently exempt from sorrow or disease. My endeavours were directed towards urging them to their usual attention to their crops, and to the acting as if pestilence did not exist. The mower's scythe was at times heard, yet the joyless haymakers, after they had listlessly turned the grass, forgot to cart it. The shepherd, when he had sheared a sheep, would let the wool lie to be scattered by the winds, deeming it useless to provide clothing for another winter. At times, however, the spirit of life was awakened by these employments. The sun, the refreshing breeze, the sweet smell of the hay, the rustling leaves and prattling rivulets brought repose to the agitated bosom, and bestowed a feeling akin to happiness on the apprehensive. Nor, strange to say, was the time without its pleasures. Young couples who had loved long and hopelessly suddenly found every impediment removed, and wealth pour in from the death of relatives. The very danger drew them closer. The immediate peril urged them to seize the immediate opportunity. Wildly and passionately they sought to know what delights existence afforded, before they yielded to death, and, snatching their pleasures with rough strife, thorough the iron gates of life, they defied the conquering pestilence to destroy what had been, or to erase even from their deathbed thoughts the sentiment of happiness which had been theirs. One instance of this kind came immediately under our notice where a high-born girl had in early youth given her heart to one of meaner extraction. He was a schoolfellow and friend of her brother's, and usually spent a part of the holidays at the mansion of the duke her father. They had played together as children, been the confidants of each other's little secrets, mutual aids and consolers in difficulty and sorrow. Love had crept in, noiseless, terrorless at first, till each felt their life bound up in the other, and at the same time knew that they must part. Their extreme youth and the purity of their attachment made them yield with less resistance to the tyranny of circumstances. The father of the fair Juliet separated them, but not until the young lover had promised to remain absent only till he had rendered himself worthy of her, and she had vowed to preserve her virgin heart, his treasure, till he returned to claim and possess it. Plague came, threatening to destroy at once the aim of the ambitious and the hopes of love. Long the Duke of L. derided the idea that there could be danger while he pursued his plans of cautious seclusion, and he so far succeeded that it was not till the second summer that the destroyer, at one fell stroke, overthrew his precautions, his security, and his life. Poor Juliet saw one by one, father, 
mother, brothers, and sisters sicken and die. Most of the servants fled on the first appearance of disease. Those who remained were infected mortally. No neighbor or rustic ventured within the verge of contagion. By a strange fatality, Juliet alone escaped, and she to the last waited on her relatives and smoothed the pillow of death. The moment at length came when the last blow was given to the last of the house. The youthful survivor of her race sat alone among the dead. There was no living being near to soothe her, or withdraw her from this hideous company. With the declining heat of a September night, a whirlwind of storm, thunder, and hail rattled round the house, and with ghastly harmony sung the dirge of her family. She sat upon the ground, absorbed in wordless despair, when through the gusty wind and bickering rain she thought she heard her name called. Whose could that familiar voice be? Not one of her relations, for they lay glaring on her with stony eyes. Again her name was syllabled, and she shuddered as she asked herself, Am I becoming mad, or am I dying, that I hear the voices of the departed? A second thought passed, swift as an arrow, into her brain. She rushed to the window, and a flash of lightning shewed to her the expected vision, her lover in the shrubbery beneath. Joy lent her strength to descend the stairs, to open the door, and then she fainted in his supporting arms. A thousand times she reproached herself, as with a crime that she should revive to happiness with him. The natural clinging of the human mind to life and joy was in its full energy in her young heart. She gave herself impetuously up to the enchantment. They were married, and in their radiant features I saw incarnate for the last time the spirit of love, of rapturous sympathy, which once had been the life of the world. I envied them, but felt how impossible it was to imbibe the same feeling now that years had multiplied my ties in the world. Above all, the anxious mother, my own beloved and drooping Idris, claimed my earnest care. I could not reproach the anxiety that never for a moment slept in her heart, but I exerted myself to distract her attention from too keen an observation of the truth of things, or the nearer and nearer approaches of disease, misery, and death, of the wild look of our attendants as intelligence of another and yet another death reached us. For to the last something new occurred that seemed to transcend in horror all that had gone before. Wretched beings crawled to die under our succouring roof. The inhabitants of the castle decreased daily, while the survivors huddled together in fear, and as in a famine-struck boat, the sport of the wild, interminable waves, each looked in the other's face, to guess on whom the death-lot would next fall. All this I endeavoured to veil, so that it might least impress my interest. Yet, as I have said, my courage survived even despair. I might be vanquished, but I would not yield. One day, it was the ninth of September, seemed devoted to every disaster, to every harrowing incident. Early in the day, I heard of the arrival of the aged grandmother of one of our servants at the castle. This old woman had reached her hundredth year. Her skin was shriveled, her form was bent and lost in extreme decrepitude. But as still from year to year she continued in existence, outliving many younger and stronger, she began to feel as if she were to live for ever. The plague came, and the inhabitants of her village died, 
clinging with the dastard feeling of the aged to the remnant of her spent life she had on hearing that the pestilence had come into her neighbourhood barred her door and closed her casement refusing to communicate with any she would wander out at night to get food and returned home pleased that she had met no one that she was in no danger from the plague as the earth became more desolate her difficulty in acquiring sustenance increased at first her son, who lived near, had humoured her by placing articles of food in her way. At last he died. But even though threatened by famine, her fear of the plague was paramount, and her greatest care was to avoid her fellow-creatures. She grew weaker each day, and each day she had further to go. The night before she had reached Datchet, and, prowling about, had found a baker's shop open and deserted. Laden with spoil, she hastened to return and lost her way. The night was windless, hot, and cloudy. Her load became too heavy for her, and one by one she threw away her loaves, still endeavouring to get along, though her hobbling fell into lameness, and her weakness at last into inability to move. She lay down among the tall corn and fell asleep. Deep in midnight she was awakened by a rustling near her. She would have started up, but her stiff joints refused to obey her will. A low moan close to her ear followed, and the rustling increased. She heard a smothered voice breathe out, Water! Water! several times, and then again a sigh heaved from the heart of the sufferer. The old woman shuddered. She contrived at length to sit upright, but her teeth chattered and her knees knocked together. Close, very close, lay a half-naked figure, just discernible in the gloom, and the cry for water and the stifled moan were again uttered. Her motions at length attracted the attention of her unknown companion. Her hand was seized with a convulsive violence that made the grasp feel like iron, the fingers like the keen teeth of a trap. "'At last you are come!' were the words given forth, but this exertion was the last effort of the dying. The joints relaxed. The figure fell prostrate. One low moan, the last, marked the moment of death. Morning broke and the old woman saw the corpse, marked with the fatal disease, close to her. Her wrist was livid with the hold loosened by death. She felt struck by the plague. Her aged frame was unable to bear her away with sufficient speed, and now, believing herself infected, she no longer dreaded the association of others, but as swiftly as she might came to her granddaughter, at Windsor Castle, there to lament and die. The sight was horrible. Still she clung to life, and lamented her mischance with cries and hideous groans, while the swift advance of the disease shewed what proved to be the fact that she could not survive many hours. While I was directing that the necessary care should be taken of her, Clara came in. She was trembling and pale, and when I anxiously asked her of the cause of her agitation, she threw herself into my arms, weeping and exclaiming, "'Uncle, dearest uncle, do not hate me for ever!' I must tell you, for you must know, that Evelyn, poor little Evelyn, her voice was choked by sobs. The fear of so mighty a calamity as the loss of our adored infant made the current of my blood pause with chilly horror. But the remembrance of the mother restored my presence of mind. I sought the little bed of my darling. He was oppressed by fever. But I trusted, I fondly and fearfully trusted, that there were no symptoms of the plague. He was not three years old, and his illness appeared only one of those attacks incident to infancy. I watched him long, his heavy, half-closed lids, his burning cheeks and restless twining of his small fingers. 
The fever was violent, the torpor complete. Enough without the greater fear of pestilence to awaken alarm. Idris must not see him in this state. Clara, though only twelve years old, was rendered through extreme sensibility, so prudent and careful that I felt secure in entrusting the charge of him to her, and it was my task to prevent Idris from observing their absence. I administered the fitting remedies, and left my sweet niece to watch beside him and bring me notice of any change she should observe. I then went to Idris, contriving in my way plausible excuses for remaining all day in the castle, and endeavouring to disperse the traces of care from my brow. Fortunately she was not alone. I found Marival, the astronomer, with her. He was far too long-sighted in his view of humanity to heed the casualties of the day, and lived in the midst of contagion unconscious of its existence. This poor man, learned as Laplace, guileless and unforeseeing as a child, had often been on the point of starvation. He, his pale wife, and numerous offspring, while he neither felt hunger nor observed distress. His astronomical theories absorbed him. Calculations were scrawled with coal on the bare walls of his garret. A hard-earned guinea or an article of dress was exchanged for a book without remorse. He neither heard his children cry nor observed his companion's emaciated form. And the excess of calamity was merely to him as the occurrence of a cloudy night, when he would have given his right hand to observe a celestial phenomenon. His wife was one of those wondrous beings to be found only among women, with affections not to be diminished by misfortune. Her mind was divided between boundless admiration for her husband, and tender anxiety for her children. She waited on him, worked for them, and never complained, though care rendered her life one long-drawn, melancholy dream. He had introduced himself to Adrian, by a request he made to observe some planetary motions from his glass. His poverty was easily detected and relieved. He often thanked us for the books we lent him and for the use of our instruments, but never spoke of his altered abode or change of circumstances. His wife assured us that he had not observed any difference, except in the absence of the children from his study, and to her infinite surprise he complained of this unaccustomed quiet. He came now to announce to us the completion of his essay on the paracyclical motions of the earth's axis, and the precession of the equinoctial points. If an old Roman of the period of the Republic had returned to life, and talked of the impending election of some laurel-crowned consul, or of the last battle with Mithridates, his ideas would not have been more alien to the times than the conversation of Marival. Man, no longer with an appetite for sympathy, clothed his thoughts in visible signs, nor were there any readers left, while each one, having thrown away his sword with opposing shield alone, awaited the plague. Marival talked of the state of mankind six thousand years hence. He might with equal interest to us have added a commentary, to describe the unknown and unimaginable lineaments of the creatures who would then occupy the vacated dwelling of mankind. We had not the heart to undeceive the poor old man, and at the moment I came in he was reading parts of his book to Idris, asking what answer could be given to this or that position. Idris could not refrain from a smile as she listened. She had already gathered from him that his family was alive and in health, though not apt to forget the precipice of time on which she stood, yet I could perceive that she was amused for a moment by the contrast between the contracted view we had so long taken of human life, and the seven-league strides with which Marival paced a coming eternity. I was glad to see her smile, because it assured me of her total ignorance of her infant's danger. 
but I shuddered to think of the revulsion that would be occasioned by a discovery of the truth. While Marival was talking, Clara softly opened a door behind Idris, and beckoned me to come with a gesture and look of grief. A mirror betrayed the sign to Idris. She started up. To suspect evil, to perceive that, Alfred being with us, the danger must regard her youngest darling. To fly across the long chambers into his apartment was the work but of a moment. There she beheld her Evelyn lying fever-stricken and motionless. I followed her and strove to inspire more hope than I could myself entertain, but she shook her head mournfully. Anguish deprived her of presence of mind. She gave up to me and Clara the physician's and nurse's parts. She sat by the bed holding one little burning hand, and with glazed eyes fixed on her babe, passed the long day in one unvaried agony. It was not the plague that visited our little boy so roughly, but she could not listen to my assurances. Apprehension deprived her of judgment and reflection. Every slight convulsion of her child's features shook her frame. If he moved, she dreaded the instant crisis. If he remained still, she saw death in his torpor, and the cloud on her brow darkened. The poor little thing's fever increased towards night. The sensation is most dreary to use no stronger term with which one looks forward to passing the long hours of night beside a sickbed, especially if the patient be an infant who cannot explain its pain, and whose flickering life resembles the wasting flame of the watchlight, whose narrow fire is shaken by the wind, and on whose edge devouring darkness hovers. With eagerness one turns toward the east, with angry impatience one marks the uncheckered darkness, the crowing of a cock, that sound of glee during daytime, comes wailing and untunable, the creaking of rafters and slight stir of invisible insect is heard and felt as the signal and type of desolation. Clara, overcome by weariness, had seated herself at the foot of her cousin's bed, and in spite of her efforts slumber weighed down her lids. Twice or thrice she shook it off, but at length she was conquered and slept. Idris sat at the bedside, holding Evelyn's hand. We were afraid to speak to each other. I watched the stars. I hung over my child. I felt his little pulse. I drew near the mother again. I receded. At the turn of morning a gentle sigh from the patient attracted me. The burning spot on his cheek faded. His pulse beat softly and regularly. Torpor yielded to sleep. For a long time I dared not hope. But when his unobstructed breathing and the moisture that suffused his forehead were tokens no longer to be mistaken of the departure of mortal malady, I ventured to whisper the news of the change to Idris, and at length succeeded in persuading her that I spoke true. But neither this assurance nor the speedy convalescence of our child could restore her, even to the portion of peace she before enjoyed. Her fear had been too deep, too absorbing, too entire to be changed to security. She felt as if during her past calm she had dreamed, but was now awake. She was as one in some lone watch-tower on the deep, awakened from soothing visions of the home he loves, trembling to hear the wrathful billows roar, as one who has been cradled by a storm and awakes to find the vessel sinking. Before she had been visited by pangs of fear. Now she never enjoyed an interval of hope. No smile of the heart ever irradiated her fair countenance. Sometimes she forced one and then gushing tears would flow, and the sea of grief close around these wrecks of past happiness. Still, while I was near her, she could not be in utter despair. 
She fully confided herself to me. She did not seem to fear my death, or revert to its possibility. To my guardianship she consigned the full freight of her anxieties, reposing on my love, as a wind-nipped fawn by the side of a doe, as a wounded nestling under its mother's wing, as a tiny shattered boat, quivering still, beneath some protecting willow-tree. While I, not proudly as in days of joy, yet tenderly and with glad consciousness of the comfort I afforded, drew my trembling girl close to my heart, and tried to ward every painful thought or rough circumstance from her sensitive nature. One other incident occurred at the end of this summer. The Countess of Windsor, ex-Queen of England, returned from Germany. She had at the beginning of the season quitted the vacant city of Vienna, and, unable to tame her haughty mind to anything like submission, she had delayed at Hamburg, and, when at last she came to London, many weeks elapsed before she gave Adrian notice of her arrival. In spite of her coldness and long absence, he welcomed her with sensibility, displaying such affection as sought to heal the wounds of pride and sorrow, and was repulsed only by her total apparent want of sympathy. Idris heard of her mother's return with pleasure. Her own maternal feelings were so ardent that she imagined her parent must now, in this waste world, have lost pride and harshness, and would receive with delight her filial attentions. The first check to her duteous demonstrations was a formal intimation from the fallen majesty of England, that I was in no manner to be intruded upon her. She consented, she said, to forgive her daughter and acknowledge her grandchildren. Larger concessions must not be expected. To me this proceeding appeared, if so light a term may be permitted, extremely whimsical. Now that the race of man had lost, in fact, all distinction of rank, this pride was doubly fortuitous. Now that we felt a kindred, fraternal nature with all who bore the stamp of humanity, this angry reminiscence of times for ever gone was worse than foolish. Idris was too much taken up by her own dreadful fears to be angry, hardly grieved, for she judged that insensibility must be the source of this continued rancour. This was not altogether the fact, but predominant self-will assumed the arms and mask of callous feeling, and the haughty lady disdained to exhibit any token of the struggle she endured, while the slave of pride she fancied that she sacrificed her happiness to immutable principle. False was all this, false all but the affections of our nature, and the links of sympathy with pleasure or pain. There was but one good and one evil in the world, life and death. The pomp of rank, the assumption of power, the possessions of wealth vanished like morning mist. One living beggar had become of more worth than a national peerage of dead lords, alas the day, than of dead heroes, patriots, or men of genius. There was much of degradation in this, for even vice and virtue had lost their attributes. Life, life, the continuation of our animal mechanism, was the alpha and omega of the desires, the prayers, the prostrate ambition of human race. End of chapter 8